On the 1st of September 1939, 25-year-old Malvern resident Lorna Lloyd started writing her diary of the war. This is episode 7. It is August 1940. Monday, August 12th, 1940. 120 German planes down in two great air battles. We lost 40. Derby Daily Telegraph, 12th August 1940. Germans lose more planes in coast attacks. Ten raiders seen to crash. Five dive bombers fall in town attack. Three down in channel. Germany continues to pay dearly in planes for her attempts to make mass air raids on shipping, coastal areas and balloons in the south of England. Ten German planes are already known to have been brought down today during battles over a wide area of the Channel and Thames estuary. Many others were badly damaged. The first five were destroyed when formation raiders tried to attack a balloon barrage in the southeast. Three of the German planes crashed into the Channel, the others fell inland. The second five, dive bombers, met their doom during a raid by more than 30 Junkers on another southeast coast town. One of them was hit by anti-aircraft fire, an eyewitness saw about 12 Germans descending by parachute. Monday, August 26th, 1940. I wonder if Damocles got so used to the sword suspended over his head that he ceased to fear it. I think we are getting like that. Enemy planes were over here continually last night from about 9.45 when the forces programme suddenly went off the air, but about 12pm I got sick of listening for them and went to sleep. Seven searchlights were up combing the skies, but the clouds were favourable to aircraft, and they didn't catch any in the beams. There were widespread raids reported this morning, August 27th. Next Sunday will be the first anniversary of the war. Thursday, August 29th, 1940. Yesterday, Lake Chad, and today, French Equatorial Africa and Cameroons, declared their allegiance to General de Gaulle. A bit of good news like this is very comforting to write, especially as I have just at this moment, 10.15pm, been watching searchlights following a German plane across our particular piece of sky far above my threatened head. But the minor inconvenience we suffer of nights in disturbed rest... Last night was a brute. It is nothing compared to what my incomparable fellow countrymen in other parts of the country put up with day and night. Sunday, September 1st, 1940. Today, a year ago, Germany attacked Poland. It seems like another life. It is so long ago, and so completely impossible does it seem to recapture the mood of a time when we were at peace. What will have happened by this time next year? Theo and Rennie came home for Theo's first leave since last December. They arrived at about 8.30am, having travelled all night. A somewhat sticky journey. Another piece of French territory has joined General de Gaulle. 85 German planes downed yesterday, and 22 today. A pleasing total of 107 to add to our batting averages. Thursday, September 11th, 1940. Last night the attack on London was not so heavy, owing to a new technique with anti-aircraft guns and predictors. Many of the enemy raiders did not get through. Theo predicted something like this. 
Oh, God, may it be soon that we can beat them off altogether. I forget which day it was between this and the last entry in this diary that we were bombed. Fortunately, no one was hurt, and the concussion was not particularly awe-inspiring, but then they were only small bombs. I was practically asleep, so I did not hear the worst. All I remember is a series of thuds, which made the dog bark furiously. I clutched her while remarking fatuously, "'Keep your seats, please,' which happens to be the title of one of George Formby's films. We have been sleeping in the dining room for a long time now, as the noise of aircraft, ours and theirs, buzzing about overhead, is too irritating. Eighty-nine planes downed yesterday. Sunday, September 15th, 1940. A hundred and eighty-five German planes brought down over England. Here is the midnight news, and this is Alvar Liddell reading it. Up to ten o'clock, 175 German aircraft had been destroyed in today's raids over this country. Today was the most costly for the German Air Force for nearly a month. In daylight raids, between 350 and 400 enemy aircraft were launched in two attacks against London and South East England. About half of them were shot down. It was officially announced that by 10 o'clock tonight, 175 raiders were known to have been destroyed by our fighters and anti-aircraft gunners. Monday, September 23rd, 1940. The most appalling crime has been committed by the Bosch, surpassing all he has done before, which is to say a good deal. One of the evacuee ships, carrying children between the ages of 5 and 15 to Canada, has been torpedoed 600 miles out, and in a gale, with the loss of 83 children out of 90. Most people, like myself, feel powerless to say anything, but I don't think anyone need bother to talk about mercy for the Bosch after this. The Nazi has struck again. The Athena was not enough. Bombing suburban London is not enough. This time, their U-boat commander chose to do his work at 10 o'clock at night in a raging northerly gale. He sank a passenger ship in mid-Atlantic. There were 400 people on board, and now there are 100 alive. I am one of that 100, perhaps the luckiest of them all, because not only am I alive, but I have hardly a scratch or a bruise. Only an insignificant number of the children were saved. There are occasions when the most comprehensive precautions and the utmost consideration are valueless, when the efforts of every adult within reach are nothing compared with the vindictiveness of a harsh sea and a bitter wind and a merciless enemy. The vast majority of those children who look for safety in a new world have perished, and our only answer is a steadfastness of purpose which brings a more civilised state of affairs rapidly nearer. Tuesday, September 24th, 1940. General de Gaulle arrived in Dakar in Africa with an expeditionary force to demand its surrender. I hope this enterprise succeeds. It seems important to me. Invasion seems to have hung fire a bit. London is still being attacked.
Daily News, 24th September 1940. De Gaulle goes to Dakar. British naval units bombarded town, says Vichy. A force of free Frenchmen, led by General de Gaulle and aided by British units, went into action yesterday at Dakar, the great port in French West Africa, in order to rally the colony to his cause. According to messages from Vichy, General de Gaulle delivered an ultimatum to the Governor-General of French West Africa, whose headquarters are at Dakar. This was rejected, whereupon, says Vichy, the British naval squadron with de Gaulle began shelling the town. Monday, November 4th, 1940. The eve of the presidential elections in America, and a week from the day upon which Greece was attacked by fascist Italy. The peculiar thing about this diary is that the more pressing the need becomes to record events, the less they are recorded. When there was nothing doing, it went into intolerable prosy discussions of war aims, ambitions and emotions. Now that there is every reason to write often and well, great deeds to recall and noble sentiments to chronicle, nothing comes. Perhaps it is natural. Last night was the first night since September 17th that London has not had an air raid alarm. I am so proud of my countrymen. I am even a little proud of myself, although I have done nothing but give advice from a comparatively safe distance. There are simply no words to describe the bravery of quite ordinary, humdrum people whom you have known all your life. Nobody dramatises what they have been through. Mostly they depreciate it and say that it isn't half as bad as they were afraid it would be. Perhaps it isn't, but I think it is more true to realise that Leonidas's men at Thermopylae were to their fellows only just humdrum everyday Greeks, no larger or smaller than the everyday Greek landscape. Drake's men, who beat the Armada, were average Elizabethans, who looked exactly like everybody else. Such an attitude of mind releases one from the intolerable starched nonsense of the doctrine of the Superman which Nazis and Prussians have thrust upon Germany at her cost. For God founded his church, not upon John, the loved disciple, that lay so close to his heart, and knew his mind, not upon John, but Peter, Peter the liar, Peter the coward, Peter the Rock, the common man. Tuesday, November 5th, 1940. Presidential elections. Most people seem to think that Roosevelt will get in by a small margin. Wednesday, November 6th, 1940. Roosevelt is in, which is a great relief, but the Yankees will have to get a push on if they are to catch up. Dundee Evening Telegraph, 6th November 1940. Roosevelt gets clear mandate. Wilkie still clinging to forlorn hope. Unless there is something more than a miracle, President Roosevelt has been re-elected President of the United States. Newspapers, including the New York Times, which backed Wilkie, have already conceded his victory, the American way of announcing the result. Monday, November 11th, 1940. Remembrance Day. Very beautiful services on wireless. Mussolini chose today to launch his first air attack on Britain and lost 13 planes over it. Eight Italians in Thames. Monday, 11th November 1940, midnight. Here is the news, and this is Joseph MacLeod reading it. 
Outstanding victories by the Royal Air Force include the destruction of 25 enemy aircraft over this country today, 13 of them Italian. Last night's bombing operations over German-controlled territory extended from the Baltic to the Bay of Biscay. Against Italy, our aircraft have raided supply bases for troops attacking Greece, military targets in Naples, Sardinia, Abyssinia and Eritrea. There is more news of our increased preparedness in North Africa. The Czech and Polish governments have agreed on collaboration after the war. President Roosevelt has declared his firm faith that the democracies will win through. The latest reports on the earthquake in Romania speak of still heavy casualties. Great new achievements have been added to the record of British fighters and bombers since the last midnight news. The fighters have more than mastered the first Italian daylight attack on Britain, as well as several more by the Germans, and the bombers, besides flying further east over Europe than ever before, have bombed the enemy from the Baltic almost to the equator. Here first is an account of our fighters' successes today and details of the utter rout of an Italian bombing force. The Italian bombers came over to attack a convoy in the Thames estuary. There were about 15 of them, with 60 fighters as escort, and they flew in neat formation until a single squadron of hurricanes appeared. Then the Italian pilots, who are said to have been longing to meet the RAF, broke up, and it was every man for himself. Seven of the enemy machines were destroyed before another hurricane force arrived and completed the rout. When the engagements were over, the Italians had lost 13 of their aircraft altogether, and not one British fighter was lost. Tuesday, November 12th, 1940. News of a marvellous Navy victory in the Mediterranean over Mussolini's fleet. Yesterday, planes of the fleet air arm carried out an attack on the Italian fleet, which was skulking in harbour at Taranto, thinking itself safe. So successful was the attack that three battleships and two auxiliaries were badly damaged. It makes a lot of difference to our naval position. The fleet has also sunk some supply ships going to Greece. The Greeks, by the way, are doing marvellously. The whole naval tradition of these islands is summed up in two main events at sea reported today. The glorious success at Taranto and the no less glorious fight of the Jarvis Bay. A fight against overwhelming odds, securing the escape of the vast majority of the convoy ships in her charge. And whilst paying this brief, but no less heartfelt tribute to the captain and ship's company of the Jarvis Bay, I would add that six more of the ships in the convoy, previously unaccounted for, are now reported to have arrived in port. Thursday, November 14th, 1940. Had a very bad night. Jerry was bombing savagely in the distance and the whole house shook repeatedly. It transpires next day that a vicious attack had taken place on Coventry where 250 people were killed and the best of a thousand wounded in one of the worst air raids of the war, comparable with the fascist attack on Guernica in the Spanish War. Most of the city centre has been destroyed and all the medieval records. But above all, the 14th century cathedral has been laid in ruins, except for the tower. This is supposed to be a reprisal for our raid on Munich, but no one believes any such fairy tale. It is simply one of those attempts to break civilian morale by which, as a nation, the Germans are slowly digging their own grave. Writing to Grace the other day, a phrase occurred to me quite spontaneously from Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, 
which I have been reading while I have been ill. Father, forgive them not, but curse them, for they know what they do. I need not say more. Bomb after bomb, incendiary bombs fell, and we, we fought them with what we could of the equipment we had, one after the other, it took a long time. And then, finally, a group of three fell on the roof and well, the fire blazed up and we had no more sand and no more water and practically no more strength to go on. And the fire got a big hold. The fire station came, but, um, well, there was no, not sufficient water to deal with it and the fire got a complete grip of the roof and burnt from roof to roof and all the pews blazed up, a great inferno inside. I think we all tried to do our best. Uh, the fire service was simply magnificent. Uh, by about 1.30, the whole thing was gutted, the pillars in the middle, and the great grand arcade fell down, and the nave of the cathedral was no more. Monday, November 18th, 1940. Bombs were dropped last night at Callow End with a whopping bang. I don't think anyone was killed. Tuesday and Wednesday, November 19th and 20th, 1940. There were two heavy raids on the Midlands in which we participated, both beginning with a siren promptly at 7.10pm. Only one bomb dropped at Upton on Tuesday. All clear at 12.45 on Tuesday and 3.10am on Wednesday. Birmingham Mail, 20th November 1940. Midlands ordeal. Many planes in nine-hour attack. Much damage to property. Five raiders destroyed. Once again, the Midlands were the main objective of enemy air attack last night. One town had its severest raid and its heaviest casualty list of the war, though considering the scale of the onslaught, the casualties were not so numerous as might have been expected. The raid lasted for about nine hours, and after flares and incendiaries had been dropped to light the way, waves of heavy bombers released high explosives over a wide area. Damage was mainly to house property, but some small industrial premises also suffered. Public utility services were also affected, but not seriously, and repair work is in hand. Some serious fires, as well as a number of smaller fires, developed, but prompt work on the part of the regular fire brigade and the AFS enabled the fires to be brought under control long before the raid ended. Thursday, November 21st, 1940. No air raid siren this evening, but we got another sort of shock instead. Father came home on embarkation leave for the Middle East. Friday, November 22nd, 1940. There was an air raid warning about the usual time. There was a heavy attack on the Midlands, which lasted until 6am. Good bit of damage done, I suppose. Monday, December 2nd, 1940. There have been heavy raids on Birmingham, Liverpool, Southampton and Bristol during the last week, but nothing but a general account of the casualties is given. What good could it possibly serve but to gratify the enemy and discourage our own people? Dawn came home on Saturday for her usual three nights off from night duty at the QEH. She looks older. They had 91 casualties in one night after a big raid and the place looked according to her, like a slaughterhouse. The centre of Bristol is reported to be gone 
in and around Wine Street and Bristol Bridge. St Mary Redcliffe roof was damaged, Holy Nativity Knoll raised to the ground, but the University Tower still stands, and I believe the Cathedral is still intact. I can't sleep lately. I don't know whether it is weakness or warfare. It seems very difficult to get started, and once having got started, to keep at it. Being ill gives one such an awful gnawing sense of uselessness. There is so much that one could do, but the very first requisite is health, and the second endurance, neither of which I can supply. For interest, I am going to try and sort out my feelings, since they seem to coincide with those of most people. First of all, I do not think any of us are functioning normally. One feels quite detached, as though one is seeing this frightful war like a phantasmagoria from a long way off. We hear of the total destruction of places that are dear sentimentally, but the news makes no real mark on the brain. Habit quickly reconstructs the lost object, and one easily ceases to believe that it is gone. One lives in a curious, stupid faith that all of a sudden it will stop, quite abruptly. Then we shall have leisure for mourning, but we don't mourn now. I don't think we will even feel. News Chronicle, 2nd December 1940. Southampton Raid lasted seven hours. Centre of the city left in ruins. Southampton lies under thick smoke today after its worst raid, begun by waves of bombers last night and continued for more than seven hours. Fire bombs were rained on the city from north to south and from east to west until from the air Southampton must have looked like a gigantic fiery cross. Then to the city's ordeal by fire was added the terror of high explosive, aimed where the flames were most fierce to drive back the men who were fighting them. Shops, houses and buildings are in ruins. Millions of pounds worth of damage to property all over the town has been done. In spite of the ferocity of the attack, which has left the centre of the city a ruin and smashed a great area of houses, Mr. R. R. N. Megason, the town clerk, gave us an assurance that the number of dead is not so great as might have been expected. We asked a Southampton policeman who was out in it all night what he thought of it. This, smiled through the grime on his face, was his answer. It was hell. But you know this morning it does not look half as bad as it felt, and that is how gallant Southampton faced the savagery and endured it. Later that day, Lorna made another entry in her diary. There is a family scene today with B. She lies all the time, and we are stupid and foolish. There is no difference, I think, between she, little egoist, and F, who completely confuses a noble patriotism with extreme jealousy. According to him, it's my relationship with Mummy that causes the jealousy, and nothing else. Equally, little B is sure that everyone else is lying, and that she said nothing but the absolute truth. In reality, there are several people in the dark. Even French, as execrable as mine, is useful sometimes. I had not thought of this little device before. In the end, good Aunt G saved her poor little lamb with the result that the event, is that the right word for the issue, is completely confused. And I, who was only the instrument of justice, am beginning to feel that I was to blame. Thursday, December 5th, 1940. Today we had a letter from Auntie Evelyn, which only too clearly gave us a picture of the damage in Bristol. The worst of it is somehow... I don't feel any different about it. I don't feel stunned or prostrated by it. 
I don't seem to feel it at all. As far as one can gather, a wedge of the town with the university as its apex, and one side of Park Street as its boundary, is simply gone. In one night, all the intimate associations of the past have vanished. The art gallery, where I have spent many an hour, the museum with the skeletons of which I had such fears, the Prince's Theatre, the Hippodrome, Marianne's, Jolly's and a hundred other pieces of the furniture of my existence. Simply gone. Soon we shall have no past, just as, at the moment, we seem to have no future. Weemaro gone, Boulogne gone, now Bristol. London was so big and impersonal, Coventry I hardly knew, but Bristol represented all the most settled, rooted aspects of my life. One lived in Ilford, Sheffield, Lee, Malvern, but somehow Bristol was home. Even after Granny died, there seemed to exist a platonic Craigmore with Auntie Daisy perpetually waving at the window, and Granny coming into that dark hall, ponderously but quietly saying, Well, dears. There was a remote nursery upstairs, with faded fairy tale people on the walls, where one didn't remember being particularly happy, but which seemed to be the beginning of all things that had any continuity. As one of a not very fortunate generation, I never had a sensation of having very deep roots. Now I don't seem to have any at all. Only too well can I imagine the desolation of these once prosperous streets. After Bellieu, at the age of six, I don't have to see what a ruined town looks like or smells like. Only this time, I wonder if I shall ever dare to go and look. How fantastically everything is distorted and underlined. I was going with Arthur to the university to look at his specimens. For some reason I didn't go. Now there's probably no laboratory to go to. How ridiculous one feels tempted to console oneself with some trite remark about procrastination. Did I mean all that burble I wrote on May 15th? No, of course I didn't. I still clung to the mad idea that although one may get windy at times, things don't really happen like this. Something intervenes at the last minute to prevent them. Wouldn't one be hideously afraid if one knew about the future what one knows about the past? I am glad to see by the entry of May 12th to 14th that I recorded that the rats were gnawing at me, although it makes the memory of that precarious holiday in Bristol more poignant. Western Daily Press, 3rd December 1940 Another Blitz on West Town The Blitzkrieg on a West Town was resumed last night and lasted for several hours, an attack of considerable severity developing soon after dusk. The usual technique was employed. The enemy raiders came over at short intervals and dropped flares, followed by incendiary bombs and high explosives. First reports indicate that the attack was mainly directed against the centre of the town and four districts. Shop and residential premises were reported damaged, and a number of fires started which were efficiently and rapidly attacked by the regular and voluntary civil defence services. These with the ARP and other voluntary workers again proved their heroism by braving the fury from the skies throughout the indiscriminate onslaught. Church premises were among those reported damaged by fire. Tuesday, December 10th, 1940. We attacked the Italians in Libya and captured 5,000 prisoners. 
I like the we. I don't think I had much to do with it personally. <laughs> Thursday, December 12th, 1940. It was a very bad night last night, with guns firing endlessly and heavy bombs dropping in the not-so-distance. Cheltenham seems to have got it, and Birmingham. We hardly slept at all, for though the all-clear went at 1.40am, a new alert sounded at 4am, and the all-clear did not go until 20 to 8. We captured Sidi Barani in Libya, and 20,000 prisoners all told. A very nice little haul, but I wish they had been Germans. Jerry seems to be too quiet. He's up to something particularly beastly, one can be sure. Lord Lothian died suddenly in America. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lorna Lloyd's Diary of the War. Lorna Lloyd is played by Bethany Ray and the newsreader by Richard Godden. Catherine Stephen is the announcer. The War Diary was written by Lorna Lloyd. Additional radio news broadcast material was supplied by the BBC Archive, copyright BBC. Print news was sourced from the British Newspaper Archive, with thanks to the British Library and Find My Past, and from back issues of the Malvern Gazette, held at Malvern Library. The theme tune is an extract from César Franck's Symphony in D minor, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Richard Hickox on the 5th of September 2003, and also kindly made available by the BBC Archive. This podcast episode was brought to you by staff and students of the School of Computing at Edinburgh Napier University. It was produced by third-year students Alex Genks, David Graham, James McLaughlin, Andrash Peter and Michael Sutty, under the supervision of Ian McGregor. The podcast was directed by Bruce Ryan, with the assistance of Hazel Hall. The UK Arts and Humanities Research Council funded this work through the Creative Informatics Programme. Find out more about Lorna Lloyd and Wartime in Malvern at www.malvernmuseum.co.uk and in the next episode of The Diary of the War.